Okay, so I haven't done this talk for about two months. I'm telling you that in advance because I might be referring to my note cards a bit more than I normally would. And there you go, right away, I've left my note cards in my bag. So you see, I'm right that it's going to be... I'm glad I made that explanation. There we go. First couple of times I did this talk, I'd written it all out on A4 like a speech. And then I thought I was going to, you know, rationalise it into little note points... And I've rationalised it so far that I've written who am I and my name on this first card, which I think is probably a bit, probably going a bit too far. So, um, where's my little thing? Is that on? So, yeah, that's a good question. The first question, who am I? Me. Um, <laughs> I chose the best, most photogenic photograph on me that I could. Um, yeah, I'm Neil Denny. I'm the producer and the presenter of a, a podcast called Little Atoms, which is broadcast, I should say, on a Friday night. But since yesterday, for the first time in eight years, we're now on a Tuesday, Tuesday morning at 11am on a radio station called Resonance FM in London. Um, and then it's a podcast. Uh, I've been doing that for eight years. This is September now, eight years in September. And... Um, in 2012, last year, last May, I was the recipient of something called a Winston Churchill Memorial Trust Travelling Fellowship, which is basically a grant, and using that money, I went to America for a month, for 28 days, drove 6,600 miles from the West Coast to the East Coast in a sort of convoluted W-shape via Chicago, and interviewed, how many? 40 interviews, I recorded 40 interviews along the way, mainly with science types, science writers, scientists, and various types like that and Little Atoms the, the radio show is we describe it as about ideas and culture and it's normally about science and rationalism um, but I've tried to vary that a little bit over the last year or so so we're starting to do more sort of artsy stuff and what we generally do is interview a, a writer a scientist an academic something like that generally about a book that they've just recently had out um, as I said, it's been going for eight years. Uh, we've got about 10,000 subscribers to the podcast at the moment. And in 2012, the show was downloaded just over 1.2 million times across the, the course of the year. Now, telling you that I, I sort of host a, produce and host a radio show about science, I should also admit that I am not a scientist. I have almost zero. I have one CSE in... Um, in chemistry, so I have a little bit of science qualifications, but my entire school career, I, I, I was always really bad at maths, although I was really interested in science, I was sort of bad at maths and academic science, and I went to a really sort of progressive hippie school in the 1980s, where you could basically do what you want, so I avoided any stuff that was in any way hard, and did English and art studies all the way through it, and then went to university and studied English and media studies, and... Um, but all that time, I was interested in science, and I was interested in science fiction. I grew up in the you know the seventies. I was interested in the space race and total nuclear annihilation and things like that, and Star Wars and all of that stuff. Like anybody growing up in that time was, and I I've always been a voracious reader of non-fiction, and I would read popular science books, and I used to avidly watch the sort of James Burke and Arthur C. Clarke TV series and things, and Tomorrow's World. But I would also read stuff that was what I thought was probably called science, but wasn't. So I would I would happily read a book about, or read a newspaper article or something about um, 
archaeologists looking for the bones of ancient plesiosaurs in the desert somewhere and then read a book about the Loch Ness Monster where researchers were looking for living plesiosaurs and not really make any sort of distinction between those two things. I wouldn't necessarily believe it, but I would think it was interesting and a sort of worthwhile thing to be doing. And um, just never made the distinction between what was science and, and what wasn't science. And then one day, and I'm in my late 20s at this point, so let's not, let's not have any illusions that I was like nine or something. One day I was browsing through the bookshops looking for more stuff that was like about pyramids and the Loch Ness Monster and the Yeti and stuff like that. And I accidentally bought this book. Um, and I say it, I genuinely mean accidentally. I looked at it, it's got the word demon in the title and it's black and a bit lurid, the cover. And I thought, yeah, this is it. This is, this is about more of that sort of stuff. So I bought this book and... Yeah, it is about that sort of stuff, obviously. But, of course, it's about that sort of stuff in a way that says that sort of stuff is bollocks, frankly. And that there is a great way of telling the archaeologists apart from the people that are looking for Loch Ness Monster. And this is a thing called the scientific method. And, as I said, 28-year-old bloke, this is the first time that concept has actually been explained to me in a way that made me think oh great there is that's amazing there's this way of telling stuff apart and from then on i became obsessed with that sort of type of science so read more carl sagan discovered through him the james randy educational foundation and started 10 years ago this year going to my first skeptics in the pub uh, where i met the guy who i would eventually a few years later start little atoms with so Everything, me being into popular science, starting the radio show, going to America last year to do that trip, and then being here to talk to you about it in this pub, is all basically down to me buying this one book and being influenced to do it by Carl Sagan. So I'll say a couple of words about the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, who are the people that, that paid for my trip. Every year they give out about... It's up to about 112, 115 now, travel grants of up to about £10,000 to anybody, basically, who's a British citizen who comes up with a good idea. They're not, it's specifically not for academics to go and do academic studies. It's just for people that come up with a good idea. It's supposed to be something to do with your work in that you're supposed to bring back your knowledge and your personal growth or whatever from the trip to share with your, your sort of work colleagues and say, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a nurse, I want to go to Africa and study how malaria is treated in Africa or something and then come back and share that knowledge with, with people. And my application, I said, I have a radio show, my group of people I want to share the knowledge with is the audience of that of that radio show and that was fine so as I said every year they give out 110 grants and part of the reason that I'm, I'm doing these talks is because now as Penland's for getting that money I'm supposed to come and proselytize about it and and encourage you all to apply for it as well and I have been doing this all year and you've got until the 24th of this month unfortunately only to uh, to apply for next year's but um yeah, the point is of this is to encourage you to all think of an idea and do that because, well, they gave it to me, so basically they'll give it to they'll give it to anybody. The other thing I should say, sorry, the point is that they give out hundred, they give out uh, over a hundred grants, so about hundred and ten grants, and every year they. they how many people have heard of this organisation? Five minutes ago, obviously not since I've been telling you about it now, but can put your hand up if you've heard of this organisation before? One or oh, two? Okay, two people, right? 
every year they give a hundred grants, they get about a thousand people apply for it because they are terrible at PR. Nobody's heard of it. None of you have heard of it. So basically, the point is, if you apply for one of these grants, you've got a one in ten chance of getting it, which is far better than most grant fund- foundations, which is again a great reason to go for it. So. Very briefly about why America, um, mainly because I just really wanted to go there, is the, is the point. And um, I was already on the radio show talking to loads of American scientists, but doing like, really bad over-the-phone, bad transatlantic telephone line interviews. There's one particular one with a guy called Brian Sweetek, who uh, writes, about, uh, archaeology, uh, sorry, writes about paleontology. One of the best books I've ever read in all the time I've been doing the show is called Written in Stone by Brian Sweetek. And we did a talk about him. We spoke for about an hour and 20 minutes. And he was actually out in the field on, an, on a dig. And he was like in Ghost Ranch in New Mexico in a porter cabin where they'd strung up a couple of tin cans on the end of a wire, on the end of a wire or something. And I did what I thought was a really great interview and then listened back to it. And it was the worst sounding, terrible audio imaginable, which... I put out regardless because I always do because I don't think that's necessarily that important but I thought at that point I'm not going to I'm not going to do this anymore I'm not going to do these really bad telephone interviews and then a couple of weeks later a lady called Anita Sethi came on the show um, and she wrote to me and said can I come on your radio show to talk about this interesting project I'm doing I've got this money from this organisation called which is something I'd never heard of um, I'm going to India and Africa to study how social media is used by people in villages to communicate with each other and give each other money. Great, interesting thing. And then we talked about that. We talked about this thing called the Wisdom Church of the Royal Trust. And she said, you should apply for that. You've got loads of good stuff going on. You've got loads of ideas. You should apply for that. And I went, well, yeah, great. I haven't really got any ideas, but, you know, think about it, whatever. And then went away and literally on the train home, I thought, oh, yeah, America, terrible phone lines and bad, bad interviews i could go over there and interview loads of scientists basically just go and get loads of people and get a huge stock of stuff for the for the radio show and then i sort of finessed that into a bit of a a bit of a better better idea for the application basically talking about the contrast between science and skepticism in america and in europe which is what i'm getting to now why why america as i I mentioned the reason i'm interested in this is because of american scientists and skeptics like carl sagan and james randy so although i've been involved in the skeptic and sort of rationalist movement in the in the uk for 10 years it's always been i guess through that sort through that sort of focus so that was the as i said america was the obvious place to leap out and, it, and it's an interesting place because it's most of the best universities i shouldn't say that while i'm in oxford i should think of that line different line but everywhere else i would say most of the best universities in the world are in, in america but also you know they have this the fundamentalists and you know the anti-abortion stuff and and the all this sort of that sort of that weird anti-science thing that goes on as well so there's it's there's quite an interesting contrast there so i guess that's that's really why America, but mainly it was because I wanted to go because I like America and I like American scientists. So before I went, I got in touch with the Guardian and said to them, "I'm going away and doing this trip. Um, would you like me to write about it while I'm away?" And they said yes. And um, when I say I got in touch with the Guardian, I should say I got in touch with my friend who works with the Guardian and said, "Can I do this for you?" And he said yes, which is slightly less impressive, but but there you go. So I wrote a column talking about a, a much more um, 
a much better way than of much fewer words of what I've basically just told you over the last over the last ten minutes. And and that column was this column was posted literally while I was waiting at the airport to get on the plane to fly to America on the first day. And this says, how rational is America? The home of conspiracy theories, creationism, and climate skepticism is also a scientific powerhouse. Neil Denny is on a road trip to explore that contradiction. Now, bearing in mind what I've just told you about why I was going, and if any of you have ever heard the radio show before, you, know, you might know that we only interview people that we like and want to talk to because we think their stuff is interesting. We never do sort of confrontational interviews with people that we disagree with because you, plenty of that stuff you can find elsewhere. So this is basically a lie. This is, this is not what I was going to do at all. As I'm sure you know, if you've ever written anything, you don't write the headlines yourself, the subs do that. So I had no sort of control over that. But of course, once this went up... I'm not sure how long, mid-afternoon, so that had been up a couple of hours and it's got 180 comments already and it just went crazy with stuff like this. Um, basically, are you saying it's going to be, are you saying it's going to be shot by Christians? So I stood in an airport watching this argument going on, waiting to get on the plane to fly over to America. The other thing that had happened was I was convinced I'd applied for the wrong visa anyway because I'd applied for like the sort of visa waiver tourist thing and then someone had sort of vaguely convinced me that they might think I was a journalist because I was going over sort of to work and I might have got the wrong visa so I was sort of panicking about that. Now this is going on. By the time I'm landed in America I'm convinced I'm going to be put on the first plane back by a, a, a party of gun-clad Christians who are going to wait to turn, turn me around but luckily that didn't happen so... So this is, this is where I went. I flew to, in what was it, 11th of May, to, into San Francisco, and then over the next 28 days drove this convoluted up that way, W shape, across the country, flying home 28 days later from Boston via all these cities, 6,600 miles through 20 states, and spoke to all of these people, um, some of which names you will recognise, um, some you won't. I wanted to get a good mix of famous people or perhaps you know eminent scientists who were perhaps quite old who had done like great work in the past, but were now sort of like in their dotage. But also some like really young people in their labs that were just doing exciting work. There's also science writers, and despite what I said about only ever talking to people that I agree with, there is one name on there which we'll get to in a moment that doesn't necessarily fit that bill but um what i'm going to do now for the rest of the talk is go across america via a very quick series of slides so as we go i'm going to play you clips from some of the interviews that i did along the way so that's the basically the um the rest of the talk so First of all, this one. This is um, you can probably tell by the by the the writing. This is the SETI Institute, which is in a, a place called Mountain View, in which is in the middle of Silicon Valley, north um, south of San Francisco, on the west coast. And um, the SETI Institute is, I'm sure you know, SETI Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Um, there's actually loads of people that do that. So when people say, oh yeah, SETI, when they talk about SETI, they think they're talking about this place in particular because it's the most famous one, but actually. There's lots of people that do that same sort of thing, but specifically this place, the SETI Institute, it's the place that Frank Drake is based at, who um, 
who is the guy behind the, the, the famous Drake Equation who started off a thing in the 60s called Project Osmo, which was the first attempt to look for aliens with like radio wave, radio telescopes. Frank wasn't there on the day I was in there, but I did get to go in his office and sit in his chair, which was quite nice. Um, but I was, I, went, I was there to, um, to spend some time with a guy called Seth Shostak, who's the, uh, the chief astronomer there, and um, he does a lot of their public outreach, and he does a... a um, a really great podcast called Big Picture Science, uh, which, which I highly recommend. And um, I'm going to play you a little clip of me talking to Seth. And we're talking about there's, you know, there's always this thing when like sort of conspiracy theorists say about, oh, the aliens, they're already here. You know, they've been here for years or they're coming all the time. But the government, they won't, you know, they don't tell you about that. They cover it all up because we couldn't handle that. Well, that's the question that we're talking about in this little clip, which You'll have to tell me if, you, if it's not loud enough because we obviously tried it when you were all talking. The image everybody will have will be of uh, looking for little green men or some sort of variation. But of course, finding a microbe on another planet would be equally as exciting. If that happens, when that happens, let's say, when we find something, even some tiny indication of life, how will that change the way we feel about ourselves, do you think? Will there be some sort of existential change in the way that we look at ourselves? Well, in a sense, we've run that experiment. In 1996, there was this announcement by NASA that uh, they had found, you know, dead microbes Mm -hmm. in a meteorite that had come from Mars. No doubt that it had come from Mars. The doubt was whether these were really microbes, of course. But at least for the first couple of days of that story, the assumption was, look, NASA's announcing this. These are reputable scientists. One of them was from Stanford University, and so it must be true. Now, it later came in for criticism, and the back and forth on that is still ongoing, so that's an unresolved uh, result. But you could see what the reaction was. It was the biggest science news story of the year. People didn't riot in the streets. Everybody wanted to know, well, gosh, life on Mars, and uh, what kind of life is it? Does it have DNA or whatever? Are we descended from these Martians, which is, of course, a possibility and that sort of thing. So it isn't that suddenly, you know, peace and brotherhood broke out or anything like that, but it's extremely interesting to the public. So Seth's, um, as I said, Seth's the chief astronomer and he's involved in the, the radio telescope stuff, which I guess, as I said, I wanted to talk about that because it's the famous image that we have, isn't it? Well, I guess probably while, while you were here listening to Seth there, a lot of you were probably picturing Jodie Foster rather than whatever it is that the Seth looks like. And you picture this idea of someone with headphones on listening to signals coming from a radio telescope and... Um, that isn't actually really how it works in that they're constantly being bombarded with signals all the time. Um, all signals from intelligent life, but just most of them from, from Earth, or 99999 from from Earth. And um, they have to sort of sort out the wheat from the chaff in that. And I said to Seth, um, what's the best one you've ever, the best one you've ever found? And he said, oh, I think, I can't remember what it was, in 1983 or something, there was, there was one that had us fooled for about an hour, and it turned out to be a, a European weather satellite. And um, that seems to be the way that it's gone for like forever. They, they just don't, although this, as I said, the, the radio telescope thing seems to be the thing that everybody thinks about when they think about looking for, for aliens. It's, it's not particularly being very successful and so specifically this place the SETI Institute as I said although you picture the radio telescopes about 90% of the work they do there is astrobiology by which they they look for look for life elsewhere but microbes rather than than little green men that have discovered radio technology so um we'll leave Seth there and uh go back to this is well it's the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco which is a bit of a cheat because this um this 
clip I'm going to play you was recorded over the bay in Oakland, which is nowhere near as t- as photogenic as San Francisco. So I, so I took that. But this is um, I'm going to give it a minute. Um, this is a, a clip of an interview with the science writer Mary Roach, who um, you may be familiar with. Uh, she had a book out this year called Gulp, which is about the um, the icky science of the stomach and the guts, the alimentary canal. And um, she writes humorous popular science normally that's about there's one called bonk one called stiff which is about dead bodies bonk is about sex we talk about a book called packing for mars in this little clip and um she always talks basically about the same thing which is like the the ickiness of the human body and like how you go to the toilet in space and things like that and whether or not people have had sex in space and in this little clip i'm going to play you we're talking about people well we're talking about astronauts but in this case not human astronauts there's a long and sometimes ignoble tradition of animals going into space yeah. first before we send humans up. I want to spend some time talking about chimps. The chimps were kind of the dress rehearsal for America's first people in space. And the astronauts, the Mercury astronauts, were very much against sending up a dress rehearsal with a chimp. They're like, we're ready, send us up. But there was a concern that being weightless would somehow affect the nervous system, the brain, in a way that the astronaut wouldn't be able to do tasks. So they were interested in also, could the chimp reach out and push levers and do these simple things that an astronaut would have to be able to do? So there were two things they were looking at with the chimps. And just it was kind of, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and making sure that there wasn't going to be this kind of catastrophic thing that had been overlooked when they sent them up into space. So the chimps, Ham being the most famous, Ham was the, uh, the first to go, Enos... Enos actually orbited the Earth more. The, Enos did, did a, a much more newsworthy mission, but because he was second, he didn't get all the glory. And he wasn't, he wasn't as cute as Ham. Well, also, he wasn't so much of a, a well-behaved poster boy, No, was he? he wasn't the same poster boy. Ham was super cute. And Enos was an unattractive and really ornery chimp. Nobody liked Enos. And Enos got this horrible reputation as a masturbator. They called him Enos the Penis. And people assumed... It's because he was a masturbator. In fact, Enos the Penis, I tracked down Enos's trainer, who's still alive, and I, and I said, so this nickname, Enos the Penis, he said, yeah, we gave that to him because he was just such a little son of a gun. I said, you mean, you mean he was a dick? Yeah, that's why we called him Enos the Penis. I said, you mean it wasn't, he didn't have, you know, a habit of playing with himself? But he said, Mary, all chips play with themselves. He said, no, that's not true. Who told you that about Enos? But there's this rumor, you look up any of the, like any of a half dozen space histories from the time, they'll talk about Enos has had this habit and he would like whip it out during press conferences and play with himself. And in fact, it's not true. <laughs> Poor Enos. I like to think the reason everybody held the, um, the late Neil Armstrong in such high regard is because he didn't have a habit of whipping it out in press conferences. <laughs> Probably can't say the same thing about Buzz Aldrin, unfortunately. But right, let's. Uh, I didn't put my. Um, I normally put my stopwatch on, so um, we're we're basically well, we're in. You're in now. You're gonna have to hang on and wait. But I do have a tendency to ramble, so um, we're gonna whip rapidly down the uh, down the west coast to here. This is this is Caltech, um, California Institute of Technology at Pasadena, or it's one of the buildings at Caltech and this is me actually this is later in the day over at JPL which is also um in Pasadena but um the interview that I'm going to play you a clip of in a moment was recorded earlier in the day at at Caltech with a, a guy called Ed Stone who um he's been 
connected to Caltech itself since the early 1960s. But um, in 1972, he became the project leader of the Voyager missions before they blasted off and um, still remains now, all these years later, the... um, the project leader of the Voyager missions at the time of course this was last May when I was over there to talk to him and I the clip I'm going to play you is basically saying why are you still the leader of the Voyager missions now what's the point of that um but of course subsequently over the past few months you know have noticed there's been various instances of of um, the Voyager probes possibly maybe have they or have they not left the finally left the solar system and there's still a team of scientists obviously monitoring to um see what that happened um he was the after he was the um the project leader on the voyager missions or as well as that obviously concurrently he was also the director of jpl for 10 years from 91 to 2001 during which um they launched cassini and um all of the mars rovers apart from the the latest one and various other um rather iconic space missions so yeah in this in this little clip i'm going to play you we're talking about why why are you still in charge of voyager you're a project scientist on Voyager, and interestingly, you still are. I, that's right. So I, let's talk about why you still are, first of all. <laughs> well, it turns out that I came to Caltech in 1964 as a postdoctoral researcher, and uh, then I got on the teaching faculty. And in 1972, JPL was developing this mission, which eventually became Voyager. Mm-hmm. And they were just starting that in 1972, and they came to Cal- they were looking for uh, basically the chief scientist for the mission. Mm-hmm. The mission has on it a has 11 scientific teams, and the project scientist organizes and sort of chairs the science activities on the mission. And uh, since I had already done a number of uh, experiments in space, even though I was rather young at the time, uh, I was asked if I would become the project scientist. And so I said, yes, that was 40 mm-hmm. years ago this year, and I've been the project scientist on this mission ever since. What does a project scientist of the Voyager missions do now, today? With today, we have just five teams of scientists because we've flown by all the planets and we're now headed toward interstellar space. So we still have maybe 20, 25 scientists involved in looking at the Voyager data directly. Uh, and my job is to provide the overall direction for the scientific program and to work with all of the team members so to optimize what we can do with this mission of discovery. Let's look a little at the, the background to the Voyager missions. Where did the, the impetus to go to those outer planets come from, I guess, in the first place? Very interesting. There's a graduate student at Caltech, Gary Flandro, who in 1965 was asked to look for opportunities to fly by a planet in such a way that it would give a boost to the spacecraft, a gravitational assist, like a slingshot. And he discovered in the process of looking at all these different possibilities that in 1977 it would be possible to launch a spacecraft in such a way it would fly by Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. They were all lined up together on the same side of the sun in exactly the right formation to fly by all four. Always takes me by surprise. I think I've cut him off mid-sentence there. I'm not sure why why I chose that point. This uh, got the Voyager golden record. This sorry, this is Voyager. This is one of the Voyager probes, one or two. Not sure which one, but it's definitely either one or two. Um, this is well, it's not obviously because that's out in the solar system. That's that was that was far too out of my budget to uh, to go to. But this is in it was like, like a conference center really, where they do sort of press conferences and something in um in JPL and there was like models scale models of all of the um, scale models and that means smaller doesn't it full size models of all of the uh, various probes ar- around the edge of it and this is one of the Voyager probes and as I said the golden record keep that in your minds because that's going to come up again numerous times during the uh, during the talk so 
yeah, this is this is at JPL, um, which was later in the day. This is um, I went to meet a guy called Kevin Hand, who's the uh, deputy chief scientist of solar system exploration, is his title. Um, and he's an astrobiologist, and he's basically mainly concerned with uh, the Jovian moon Europa, looking for, um, well, to study in Europa as a place where there might possibly be life underneath the, the oceans. Um, he goes to places on Earth that are like, might possibly be a little tiny bit like what it might be like there, like um, Antarctica and I guess even more interestingly to like deep sea hydrothermal vents and he was part of the um James Cameron's team when the James Cameron did that solo dive to the to the bottom of was it the I don't think it was the Mariana trench but you know one of those one of those trenches and um I said to Kevin this build that this would look like the most JPL's like it's like a college campus basically like a modern sort of 1960s university campus and um this was the most high tech looking building I took a photo of it and said oh Kevin what goes on in there just admin basically that's the HR department so so nothing particularly interesting and um and that space flight operations facility um is what they call mission control in the films. Um, it's a bit, a bit more of a long-winded title, but I thought they were they were the two most interesting sites on the thing. So this is this is actually in the mission control at, at JPL, and there was it's it's really a crap photo, so it's all a bit blurred and you can't see it. But all of the different coloured things are sort of live data coming in from all of the space probes, and there's um. Well, it's Opportunity Rover there. One of the Voyagers, I think. Oh, that's one of the Voyager ones. There's Cassini is that one just there. And the yellow one there is this, or at least the spaceship that was carrying this at the time on the way to, on the way to Mars. So this was May, the, about the third week of May last year, where the, um, the Mars Science Laboratory was basically about halfway to Mars at that time. And... Although I was I was primarily there to talk to Kevin about Europa and 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 the search for life and sort of micro um, astrobiology, pretty much everybody else at JPL at the time was concerned with getting this thing safely to Mars. This is actually this was like a twin of the thing, exactly the same size as as the thing that was on its way, the landing that was on its way to Mars. And there was this was like from a viewing gallery, but that was basically in a lab, and there were scientists all around in white coats with clipboards and remote controls and. They'd put like the, all this gravel on the floor to try and you know make it look a bit like the Mars surface, and some they'd put a mural up on the wall, like a big poster of a Martian sunset, which I think was probably a bit of overkill. But Kevin said to me, "This is Neil. This is exactly the same thing. This is a twin of the thing that's going to Mars at the moment. There's just one thing missing that's different." And I said, "He said, tell me what it is." Now I looked at it for about three seconds. And said, "No, Kevin, I can't. I can't tell me. Tell me what it is." And just here goes something which I'm going to have to read to you because it's so long and complicated. RTG, which is a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, which is basically a plutonium-powered battery. So, yeah, I was quite pleased that that was the one thing that was uh, that was missing from it. So, um, yeah, all these scientists were sort of... There was basically... When we were in mission control, he pointed out another room and there was... There's basically at the moment there was two teams of scientists competing. You remember when this landed? They did this um, space crane thing, which had never been done before, and as we all now know, it worked. It was successful, but at that time, everyone was a bit sort of petrified that it might go wrong. So there was a team of scientists that were basically charged with trying to break it and like run loads and loads of simulations as to what could go wrong, and another team that were trying to 
try to stop that from happening and they were sort of competing with each other and there was like a sort of competitive atmosphere going on but um anyway regardless of mars in this little clip we're talking about i'm talking to kevin about europa why he studies europa your main focus is on europa the, the moon of jupiter so let's talk first of all about why europa what's special about europa so my obsession with uh, the search for life elsewhere, and, th- and this goes back to when I was a kid, I feel like I'm still asking the same basic question. Uh, are we alone? Is there life beyond Earth? I'm still asking the same basic question I was asking when I was 10, but now I'm doing it with a lot more math and a, a lot more technology. One of the key aspects of finding life elsewhere is our ability to compare it to life as we know it, to compare it to the tree of life here on Earth and see whether or not that life represents a second origin of life uh, in our solar system or beyond. And Europa has a global liquid water ocean today. And if we've learned anything about life on Earth, it's that where you find the liquid water, you find life. And so Europa, in my opinion, is the prime place to go to search for living life, extant life, as we say. Oh, that's a nice, nice, quick one. So, um, again, rambling on. So we're going to whip off from the from the west coast and head rapidly across the Midwest as fast as we can via Los Alamos in New Mexico. That's the car that I had, as you probably guessed. Uh, via Texas to here to this place, which is um. Um, I can't remember the name of the place. It's Petersburg, Petersburg in Kentucky, which is a little tiny place. It's about 30 miles south of Cincinnati Airport. And, um, yeah, the Creation Museum. It's this thing run by an organisation called Answers in Genesis, uh, started by an Australian guy called Ken Ham. And while I was there, I, I interviewed... I went there specifically to interview a guy. I drove, like, three miles three miles, three days across the country without any interviews in between to get to this place. Um, now, I've said I don't generally go and interview people that I, I don't want to talk to and don't agree with, but the interesting thing about the Creation Museum is they do what they call creation science, um, unlike a lot of young Earth creationists, which is absolutely what they are, and, and they'll tell you that. As you can probably tell from that sign, they don't have a problem with dinosaurs. They, they think that there were dinosaurs. There's another one just there. They think that there was a, a, a sort of a version of evolution, but obviously not the, not the one elucidated by Darwin. Um, they say that things like you know, plate tectonics, the moving of the continents from Gondwana land or whatever into their current places, all happened. It's just all of that stuff happened in a few seconds immediately after the flood rather than over billions of years. And um, I thought it would be... I wanted to go because, like, you know, you're going past. You may as well, right? You've got to go and have a look. Um, but also I thought it would be interesting to just go and talk to these people and because they think they're doing science, but specifically and, you know, in sort of my excuse i guess is that i thought if i go and do like the normal interview that i do like i just slot it in with all the other interviews rather than just go but you're wrong about this but what about darwin i would just give say you know so tell me about your thing what do you believe like i would normally do with anybody else and then pretty much every other interview on the trip be it be be it with um astrobiologists or be it with you know people that study evolution or people that are fighting against creationisms encouragement into schools um whatever paleontologists they would all somehow be the answer to the to the questions raised 
in this particular interview. But um, before we get to the clip, I'll play. I'm going to play you a little clip of him. But let's, I think there's a yeah, there's a few more slides of in the Creation Museum. So um, there's a thing there, barominologists, which is um, a scientist that I'd never heard of before I came to this thing. Scientists who study created kinds. So as I said, they they have this sort of odd version of 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 evolution, but which is you know doesn't really bear any relation to. To Darwin, these were obviously they're stuffed birds on a sign. You go into the first, you go into the museum, and and they basically describe it as a natural history museum. That's what they were promotional museum. But there's very there's very little that makes it look like a, a museum. There's a few birds in cages when you first go in, and then there's a few there's a few casts of of um, dinosaurs, and then there's a few casts of famous fossils, which we'll we'll get to in a moment. But very quickly you get past the the bit that looks like a natural history museum and you come to these oh okay yeah you go through this bit that's basically um what would happen if the world abandoned the bible so it was like you know like sort of walt disney's version of a ghetto or something that you walk through there was a video of um have i got that one on here no okay there's um it looks sort of a, 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 a video diorama where there was there was a girl on the phone talking to her friend and discussing her boyfriend and in the next video he was playing a violent like really violent video game on his own in his bedroom in the third video they were going to get an abortion and there was supposed to be i don't know what the link was i couldn't work it out but there was definitely supposed to be some link and then once you've been through this bit which is actually it is really quite unsettling even though it's obviously all clean and disneyfied you come out into this wonderful area of, of sort of huge and really impressive biblical dioramas the guy who designed all of this worked in hollywood it's that there's, there's no expense spared in making this look good there's adam there with some animals it's not in this picture unfortunately but uh, over his over his left shoulder there was a velociraptor sort of looking in <laughs> to that picture as well and there's what we got there there we go this is sort of old uh, scene from the um, the ancient joy of sex i think adam and eve in, the, in an ancient hot tub that's obviously before it all goes wrong you know he ruins everything there's um the latest project this is was about that big it was a little little model there's actually again it's very blurred there but down here there's like a brontosaurus or something waiting to go up the go up the ramp the the, the next project of of the museum is they're building a full size what they consider to be a, a full size ark that's a model of what they're actually going to build it's on a different site and all the way around the museum you constantly panhandle to give money to raise to this you can buy a plank basically you can you pay like ten dollars you get a plank with your name on it that's going to go in to the thing i didn't do that there's um okay so this is I said there's there's a whole section where there's casts of lots of famous fossils. There's Archaeopteryx, and these are um, the footprints, casts of the footprints of Lucy, the the famous, the sort of superstar Australopithecus afarensis fossil, the famous human human ancestor. And there was this. This was basically a new display, which there was a curtain around it. And I stuck, I think he mentioned it at the beginning of the little clip. I sort of stuck my head in and took some photos. But there's a explanation of where they think lucy actually came from and that's what we're talking about in this clip so i've not told you who it was he's a guy called andrew snelling he's um he's australian as well as ken ham the founder but he's um he is he's a bona fide phd geologist he got his phd in geology from the university of sydney um he spent years working for the australian oil industry and then finally came over here to work for a answers in genesis where he spends all of his time trying to prove that the rocks of the grand canyon were laid down about six thousand years ago rather than 
all those millions of years ago. So in this little clip, I'm asking him about who, where's my cursor, who Lucy is. I was quite surprised in the museum to see a cast of Lucy, the world-famous yes. Australopithecus afarensis example. So how do we account for her? Was there a former type of human being? Uh, well, we're about to open the exhibit, and we could have even shown you that, if you like. I did, th- I did peek behind oh, the curtains. Okay. Yeah, 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 the curtains were closed, yeah, but I yeah. did have a bit of a look. But basically, looking at the bones, we would regard her as a, an extinct ape, possibly a gorilla type creature, a variety of an ape, uh, not related to humans. But it's interesting, again, the sediments or the the locations where we find these Australopithecine fossils, many of us would regard them as post-flood sediments. And therefore, Lucy is one of the varieties of apes that was descended from the apes that came off the ark. And the biblical account says, well, the animals disperse from the Middle East from where the Ark landed but initially humans stayed in the Middle East until God confused their languages and forced them to migrate so in other words the apes got to Africa before the humans so it's not surprising that Lucy and her kind get buried first and then along come humans there you go if you learn anything tonight that's uh don't take that bit away with you um yeah, that's what I was thinking as I was walking around the place. Um, yeah, as funny as it is, and it is funny, it is very, very funny, the day I, the, I actually had to rearrange the day I was going to interview them. While I was actually in, in America, I'd got the date, the date planned one day, and they got back in touch with me and said, actually, why don't you come on this day instead? So I switched things around, and the day they wanted me to go was the fifth anniversary of the, of, of the opening of the museum, which coincidental that I was there at that time. But they were celebrating the fifth anniversary and there was various events going on. And in the five years it's been open, over a million people have been through the doors to see this stuff. And they're not all there to have a laugh and, and take the piss, unfortunately. And the, particularly the day I was there, again, it was a special occasion, but the place was absolutely full of sort of young, sort of like primary school age children running around with big smiles and big bright eyes looking at the dinosaurs and things. It was a bit, it was a little depressing, but uh, anyway... Moving rapidly on across the country via Chicago, Washington, to New York, and to here. Now, I mentioned that all all of the other, well, you know, a, a good portion of the other interviews that I did on the trip, in some way, answer to that interview with with the creationist guy. And um, this is an example, a good example of one of those where we specifically talk about it. This is. And I've absolutely no idea if that's the right way up. I took that photo at an oblique arty angle for Instagram, but now I, I, I don't know whether it's probably upside down. But um, this is the, the um, Hayden Planetarium in the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And the, um, the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History in New York is Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with. He's an uh, astronomer and a big popularizer of science. Most excitingly, um, which we did talk about in the interview, but not in this clip, but we'll perhaps come to that a bit later as well, is that he's currently being... Well, I guess they must have finished filming it now because there's a trailer, but he's going to be basically Carl Sagan in the reboot of Cosmos that's coming out next year. Um, so that's quite exciting. In this little clip, we talk about the trip to the creation museum and and he has like a really interesting take on it which is why i've chosen this one a sort of take that i hadn't i hadn't heard before 
the other afternoon I spent an interesting few hours at the Creation Museum in Kentucky and they have a slightly different take on the origins of life and the age of the universe and so let's perhaps talk a little bit about where this comes from. There's always been fundamentalists walking the streets, okay? (laughs) Right, there's always been. We're a free, at least we still tell ourselves, we're a free, pluralistic country. Mm -hmm. Culturally pluralistic, religiously pluralistic, politically pluralistic. So I don't have a problem with people making creation museums. I have a problem if they believe that science. There are museums on astrology. There are museums on mythology. There are museums on all kinds of things, on cultural belief systems. I mean, in this museum here, there's a whole area given unto what cultures of the world believed, right? People believe all kinds of things. It seems to be fundamental to what it is to be human. So that's not even my issue. If you think it's science then that is the beginning of the end of the role that science plays in the economic health of your country. And they certainly do believe it's science. I was there to talk about creation science. Something like intelligent design. These guys clearly believe that they're doing science as well. Yeah, they're not. And so that's part of the problem. They don't see it as religion. They see it as science. And there are consequences to that. I'm not going to hit them over the head to tell them no. I will alert them of the consequences of this conduct. The consequences are you will breed an entire generation of people who will not actually know what science is. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they cannot enter the workforce in a way that will innovate tomorrow's economies because innovations in science and technology are the foundations of economies. It's been the foundation since the Industrial Revolution. To the extent that you do not embrace those discoveries is the extent to which you are not a participant on that frontier. And these same people, I don't know if they realize that we have a bad economy and jobs are going overseas, and I don't think they understand or see the causes and effects of these phenomena. But maybe they one day will, because while no one wants to die, of course, in America, what's especially true is that no one wants to die poor. The connection between science, technology, engineering, and the health of your economy, it's not an obvious connection. But when it's made, it's an unforgettable connection. And maybe some of that needs to be put into the curriculum. Hmm. You see, I think that's, that's, it's, it's an interesting way of, of discussing it. It's not basically attacking them for being crazy. It's saying, here's a, here's a consequence that you might actually care about yourself. So, uh, anyway, there's just, just two more clips to. We're nearly at the end. We're in New York, and um, that's Boston, which was my. Uh, final destination there's a there's a clip here with says harvard medical school with a guy called george church but i'm going to skip over that one because i'm rambling so um two more clips to play both with the same person and as i said um before new york before talking to neil degrasse tyson um no sorry after leaving new york before coming over to boston um i made one other detour up to a place called ithaca in upstate new york which is uh, home of Cornell University, which was the, um, the the university that Carl Sagan was based at. And this is a, a brand new copy of Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World that I bought from uh, a bookshop in Ithaca um, because I was on my way to go and spend some time with this lady who is Andrew Yan, who was um, married to Carl Sagan up until his death, was the co-writer with him of that book and a number of his other books, co-wrote the Cosmos TV series with him, um, is now co-producing the, um, or has co-produced this new version of Cosmos, written and co-produced version of Cosmos that's about to come out. And um, she was, she met Carl Sagan, they met, they have a, you know, a, I'm sure most of you have heard their, their 
convoluted love story, which you're going to hear a bit of in these next couple of clips. But um, she was working. She was basically curating that golden record project that I, I asked you to, to remember earlier. She was curating the music that, that went out on the, the golden record project on, on the Voyager probes. And in this first little clip I'm going to play her, she's talking about working on that project and the consequences of it. Of all the historic space missions, be they Mander and Voyager, I think is my favourite. There's something about the fact that it's literally any day now is about to leave our solar system. Makes it to me the most romantic of all the space missions. And actually, of course, for you, there's an even deeper resonance than that, isn't there? So let's talk about your involvement with the Voyager mission. Well, my involvement with the Voyager mission is really the central event of my life in some ways because it was in the course of directing the project to create an interstellar message that would be affixed to each of the Voyager spacecraft that would contain a record of what it was like to be alive on Earth. And in a way, to me, this is probably the most ambitious conceptual art piece ever Mm -hmm. mounted in human history, precisely because these two voyagers would leave the Earth, as they did in August and September of 1977, and affixed to each of them were these golden records containing 18 pieces of world music, images, 118 pictures of images of what it's like to be alive on Earth, what life on Earth looks like, a recorded sound essay of the geological and biological and technological sounds of Earth using the recorder as a kind of camera for the ear to record the history of the whole planet. And besides that, greetings in some 59 human languages and one whale language to the beings of other times and other worlds. The voyagers travel roughly as the great Ed Stone may have mentioned, something like 40,000 miles an hour. And they've been traveling for 35 years. And they have a projected future life of perhaps a thousand million years. Billion years with a B. There's loads of really great interesting facts in that little clip. But the thing that always stuck out to me the most is when she says, and one whale language, which made me think, Oh yeah, there probably are more than one whale languages, aren't there? Because there's lots of different, lots of different whale songs. But um, this was—I've—I'm going to guess, including if we if we include these forty interviews that were done on this trip, and all the little atoms ones I've done, I've probably recorded getting on for three hundred and fifty interviews over the years now with people, and this is by far the. the best one I think I've ever done my favorite I mean first of all it was in Carl Sagan's house which was you know an, an incredible privilege the house that these two shared up until up until his death but I basically told Annie exactly what I told you at the beginning that the reason I was there in America and the reason I did all of this stuff was because of the book that her and Carl wrote and you know we talked for an hour and we get emotional at times and she was really genuinely moved to hear that and um so the last clip I'm going to play you Although we've been talking about, I guess, apart from the, 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 the little creation museum interlude, we've been talking about science for most of the stuff, and we're all a room full of, you know, sceptics and rationalists and scientists and stuff. But I want you to indulge me for this last one, because we're going to just talk about romance in this last clip. 
In the course of finding this music, I was so excited, I called Carl in Tucson, Arizona, where he was giving a talk. And he wasn't there, I left a message, and went back to work in my little apartment on West 74th Street in Central Park. And phone rang, and I hear this magnificent voice say, come back to my hotel room, find this message. Said Annie called, why didn't you leave me this message 10 years ago? And that was the beginning of 20 years of such intense joy love, happiness. And so two days after this epical event, Eureka moment, I was hooked up to an EEG, an electroencephalogram machine at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. And there were cathodes, you know, diodes or whatever were hooked up to every part of me, conveying and recording every single neurological impulse and thought and heartbeat and rapid eye movement. And I was locked in this little glass room, blindfolded, completely sensory deprived, while it seemed like a score of technicians were working at a computer, which in 1977 was the size of a house. <laughs> and they were converting all of these neurological impulses into data. And of course, this was two days after Carl and I had spoken on the phone. We hadn't yet kissed or anything like that, but we had vowed to spend the rest of our lives together. So I must have been so utterly suffused mm -hmm. with every kind of ecstatic pheromone possible, because that's certainly how I felt. And so um, this was all put on the Voyager record. It's one of the final sounds in the sound essay, the heart sounds and brain sounds of a woman fallen insanely and truly in love. I looked at Carl later, uh, and I said to him, do you think there's any chance that extraterrestrials will be able to reconstruct, to decipher, reconstitute these thoughts that I had and know the meaning of what I was feeling and thinking. And I remember him looking down at me on this beautiful June day and saying, hey, a billion years is a long time, Andy. You know, who knows? You know, let's, you know I think so. It's possible. Wow. I mean, it's a nice thought, certainly. <laughs> I mean, you never know. This is... It's this thing, this record is going to be out there, you know, in a billion years' time or something, probably long after the Earth has burnt to a crisp and aliens, aliens might wander by it and they might find it and they might be going through some sort of retro stage and might have phonograph technology around and they might be able to work out how to play the record and they might be able to re recode their brainwaves, which would be a pretty amazing thing, but whatever, it's a, it's a, it's a nice thought to end with. So, um... That's pretty much it. I, as I said, the idea of this trip was supposed to be for anybody else getting their money from the Winston Churchill Trust. You were supposed to come back with some sort of knowledge or personal growth or something. And my point was always to go and get loads of stocking to go on the radio show. Um, but I think I did learn a few things along the way. Conclusions to end with, minor conclusions to end with, and um, I guess the main thing was that you know I actually I didn't mention at the beginning, but Little Atoms is something. It's like a hobby that's got out of control. It's like the hours of a part-time job, but I basically do it for fun, and um, I got to spend a month being, I guess, a proper working journalist, and really in time it was incredibly hard. It was I had amazing fun along the way, but it was like really hard work and really intense. And I learned that, you know, if you're gonna be a working journalist that does forty interviews over the course of twenty eight days and drives that miles, you're gonna have a, a nervous breakdown if you keep that up for uh, for very long. But um I also it was also really great to 
go and speak to people in their place of work. I mean, I do go in for Little Atoms interviews in the UK. I do go to people's houses or people's offices and interview them. But in this in this trip, I got the chance to go and hang out. I went to George Church's lab and met the people that were working in George Church's lab and things. And that was like a really great experience. And I think that really added something to, to some of the interviews as well. And um, finally, one of the things I did while I was while I was on the trip was um, all the time, every day I was on Twitter and I was on Facebook and, you know, saying, this is where I'm going next, this is who I've just spoken to, this is the next place I'm going, and posting photographs of amazing vistas and stuff. But I quickly discovered that all, all of us sort of followers on Facebook and Twitter were, despite all the amazing places I was going to and brilliant people I was talking to, they were far more interested the first morning when I posted a photograph of my breakfast. So, um... There's a load of photographs of food to end with, basically. There we go. That's the last one. These are the websites. So basically, as I said, you've got to the... Obviously, you could do next year, but if you can't get an application through quickly before the 24th of September, uh, look up the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust and, and, and apply for some money from them. And basically, go on, go on the web and look up Little Atoms if you haven't already heard of it. There's nearly 300 interviews of that catalogue of Little Atoms interviews, and there's nearly 40 interviews on the um, Little Atoms Road Trip podcast, which is, which is a separate feed. Um, as I said, you can find those things on Google and that. And... Um, that's it for me. Thank you very much for... Uh, I've no idea how long I've gone on for, so thanks for tolerating me. How long is it? <laughs>